0: Now listen we we start with the horn and the cheer here. you ready for it? All set? I guess you're not. We better not. <laughs> oh, boy, talk about farina. Hold it there. Well, oh, I'm sorry, honey. You're cream of wheat then All, right. okay. <laughs> All set, one, two, three. again let's start over at the top listen I'll tell you all right come on now at ease we're doing a show here all ad libs will be saved for 1205 all set nothing is funnier than the 12 year old ad libber all gang I'll tell you there he goes little glass is shining the coming generation shows great promise at least from the volume standpoint. (laughs) Well, it is summer. Now, officially, in one hour, it will be the 21st of June. And it will all begin and end at the same time. And I have maybe perhaps a stronger feeling for summer, for that external out there, because I didn't come from New York. I didn't come from a big city. And to the people who live just on the outside, just, you know, when you drive along the turnpike and you see that glow cast by Howard Johnson?
1: (laughs) Well,
0: on the other side of the globe, there are people out there in the darkness. That's the country. Well, I came from this area where all they had was steel mills on one side. Tremendous edifice. This is a machine, believe me, that makes Times Square look like kid stuff. If you can imagine a gigantic, belching, insane furnace the size of Manhattan and half of the Bronx, this is Inland Steel, plant number two. And of course, you live next to it, and it just, you see that glow in the sky from the time you're three years old and you can perceive the horizon till the time you die. That sky is always lit up. The blast furnace, the Bessemer converter, the open hearth. And on the other side of you is the darkness of Indiana.
1: <laughs>
0: Nothing. Just long rolling hills. And on the diagonal side was the big swamp. We had a swamp that stretched from the edge of our town, this little town I lived in, almost unbroken to the Michigan border, laid right there by the side of Lake Michigan, and it was a true swamp. And I'm going to tell you a story of the swamp, since I guess most of you have never lived in a swamp, have never been in a swamp. But as a kid, I spent my entire summer in the swamp. Now, the swamp is not really like going to the Catskills. Well, in some ways, yes. (laughs) But uh, the the swamp, the swamp is a separate thing. It's It's just like this, all this water is laying, just laying, and it's been cooked for countless centuries by the sun. It's got mud in it. It's totally, nobody goes there, so it's largely, really largely, even to this day, unexplored. There's no reason to go there. Just a lot of water and cattails and hanging trees and darkness, and sand, and mosquitoes, and heat. And every summer about this time, we'd split from school, and the kids would start infiltrating into the swamp. Now, I have a feeling that if every kid today was given at least seven square feet of swamp to play with, He would have a bigger and more complete sense of reality. In fact, I understand that F.A.O. Schwartz is bringing out a backyard swamp (laughs) for city kids. (laughs) Teach them what life is like, you know. And one of the things we used to do as kids, I don't know why. It's funny, a a child, I guess one of the things that we, we find interesting about children is that children are far more the true animal that we are, that we have learned to hide as we grow up suppress and not be but there is an insane maniacal urge on the part of kids to catch things you know what i mean catch things in bottles and stuff the adult doesn't really do that i don't know whether a guy at the age of 48 walking along madison avenue suddenly sees a really good beetle (laughs) (laughs) has a desire to grab it and stick it in his you know his bottle of guinness stout and take it home you know. But but the facts of the matter are, kids don't know they shouldn't do it, you know, so they have a desire. They always catch the stuff. And one of the things that we would do immediately, immediately upon getting out of school, the temperature is 105. Oh, boy, it's hot in the swamp, and, and the humidity is fantastic, was to build a seine. Now, the way you build a seine, you take a gunny sack. Now, if you don't know what a gunny sack is, this is a potato sack, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, well, today, gunny sacks are hanging in the hip apartments, that's the drapes, you see, that's, yeah, that's gunny sack material, for those of you who don't know it, that's potato bag stuff hanging there, burlap is what it is, well, burlap makes an insane, sane, (laughs) and you take, you take a potato sack and you split it right down, you open it up, and you put a broomstick at each end, and you start digging in a swamp for whatever comes up and the water you know is maybe this deep sometimes it's this deep sometimes it's seven feet deep deep you know it's black water mud up you know mud up to your hocks and we would go off saning. nobody knew why my mother would say where are you going We'd say seining and somehow she knew you know i don't know what it is mothers understand the primeval far more than the men do when they get older and she said, okay, Seinen, don't bring no junk home. So okay, all right. Going off Sainan. Well, me and Bruner and Flick and Schwartz would go off into the swamp with our Sains. <laughs> well, I remember one day, and, and this is the day, the, the, this is why I say you, you get reality. Honest to God, honest, true reality out of the swamp. And I really do believe that if, if I took this gang right here for about two hours into the dismal swamp in Virginia, You'd come back and you'd know a lot more about what you are, you'd know a lot more about the world, and you'd know a lot more about fear than you think you know now. And so Schwartz and Flick and Bruner and Little Shepherd are out in the swamp one day. The sun is beating down and everything looks so innocent. We know the terrain. The steel mill is off in the distance. There's the cattails. You can hear a train going off somewhere way off over the horizon. The big L&N is going into the hump. And we're down there saying it. Now what we caught generally was crawfish. Crawdads. Now these are tiny lobsters. (laughs) Little lobsters like this. Why we caught them? I don't know. We'd catch millions of them. Put them in a bottle. We also caught caught tadpoles. We'd catch things called moots. Once in a while we'd catch a lizard. And that's That was our catch. That was our bag. Except this one unbelievable afternoon. I'm on one end of the seine. On the other end of the seine is Flick. Flick is a tall, skinny kid. And off to our right, Schwartz and Bruner are working with their seine. We're down there digging like this. And we've been going fine for about two hours. You know, just swimming and flubbing around, sane and sweating. Swearing. Kids always swear in swamps, by the way. Insane swearing comes out of you immediately. Yelling at each other, obscenities. And all, the whole bitch, you know, we got no clothes at all on. We're down there, sane and away in the swamp. Now, this is, again, I must tell you, this is not Jones Beach.
1: <laughs>
0: this is the swamp. And once in a while, you'd put your foot down, and it'd be on the top of an ancient interred ford, you know? You'd move over a little bit, and you'd wade through, and there's, there's some kind of funny thing. You'd go like this. And you just move away. You don't want to stay there anyway. Look. God knows what it is. You just keep going up and down, sane and away. It's about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Must have been 100 degrees. And there's that slow drowse that settles in over a country. You can hear the, the locusts. You know that in, that wild sound that locusts make that you know that sound that goes on and on and your ears ring? And we're down there singing. When all of a sudden Flick pushes his end up, I push my end up, and the water explodes. Boom! We got this thing. It goes up like that. Crash! First, Schwarz hollers, well, it's a big tadpole, look, boom, up like that. And right in the middle of our seine is a completely maniacal water moccasin. <laughs> Have any of you ever dug up out of the quiet sunshine of a, sun, of a sunny Indiana afternoon a four and a half foot deadly poisonous water moccasin? Their mouth goes immediately, ah, like that. He takes one look at one look at Flick, and he's got these things, and he, boom, boom, he goes, what are you going to do with them, throw them back in the water, you know? What do you do? He's lying around, we got him in the sand, Flick says, hold him, grab him, I say, what do you mean, grab him, hold him, we got this, oh, boy, you talk about opening up a Pandora's box, let me tell you, We rush back up on the shore and we got this insane thing. He's flopping. We throw him out and he lays there. Just sort of spins around. This is a water snake. And he's suddenly up on dry land. He's just spinning around. You ought to see him. They sort of corkscrew. (laughs) And and out in the pond yet are the other two guys. Bruner is out there and Schwartz and they're scared to come in. and all of a sudden they get the idea maybe there are others out there and we're all standing like this and this thing is just rolling around and looking at us these little beady red eyes he's rolling and he lays there Flick says let's kill him that's the first instinct all kids have you know let's kill him
1: Schwartz I can hear Schwartz out of kill him
0: he's out there in the water kill him kill him Flick's kill him kill him We're standing there looking. And one of us picks up a stick and sort of hits him. Well, I'll tell you, it was like hitting a rubber hose. (laughs) I mean, you know, he just sort of snapped, moved back. And he starts working his way back towards the swamp. You know, they have a tremendous instinct for water. And he's working his way back towards the swamp. And we're standing there absolutely dumbfounded. You know, we're just standing. He works his way back all of a sudden when he gets to the edge of the water just like the most it's like magic I don't know whether you've ever seen a water snake returning to his element you can't believe it he just goes Whoo! gone and the swamp looked just like it had looked before the cattails are waving we can hear the locusts and the trains and the steel mills and flick sort of standing there with one end of the same. I've dropped my end. Schwartz and Bruner now are 400 feet out of the pond and going south. We're all sort of backing away from nature, you know? Backing away. Well, you know, I can't tell which was the scaredest. The four of us or that snake? Can you imagine that snake going back down to the nest? He gets back and he says, my God, you don't know what happened to me. He I'm just laying there and all of a sudden, and I could just see him saying, listen, I, I, I was just sitting there, just laying there, nothing happened and it was hot. I was laying all of a sudden, this thing hit me and I'm up there. I get out, he says, my God, there were these four monsters. They looked at me, he says, I just got away and I could just see all the rest of the snakes saying, oh, come on. (laughs) Boy, let a water moccasin go and he'll go. (laughs) Well, I want to tell you another thing. Animals, you know, get to be very, very, well, it's a unit. You're a unit. You get so that you're part of the animal world when when you're living next to a swamp. And I'll tell you one other incident that occurred in that swamp which i carry because i keep seeing it over and over again i keep seeing the same image when i walk on lexington avenue or (laughs) sixth avenue or fifth avenue or any place in new york city i keep seeing it i've seen it twice here tonight it's a funny sight one afternoon there was just two of us this time me and Bruner have gone deep into the deep into the swamp and there was a place out in the middle of the swamp that was known as the place where you swim. It's the swimming place. It had deep water, it had a long curving shore, and it had big trees over it. It was just like a pond inside of a swamp, you know? And we're working our way back. This was a tremendous trek. I mean, it was like four hours of struggling to get back there, sweating and struggling, you know? By the way, Right down the street from where we lived was the most fantastic swimming pool you ever saw in your life. Nobody went to the swimming pool, you know. Everyone was going to the swamp. This had a much stronger much more primeval pool. Well, on this afternoon we are going through the swamp, and you jump. You, ju- you literally jump from little hillock to hillock. You know, you jump from, from one mess of cattails to the next. We're going through the water, and we're just flubbing around, throwing rocks. Just, you know, it's like all afternoon just going there, and then you come back. That's all you do. So we're going, we're hollering, yelling at the crows, and the crows are yelling back. By the way, are you aware that of all the, of all the birds, the crow is the one bird, and I swear it, and I know people will argue with you, The crow knows when you're after it. And when you're not after it, the crow will do everything but sit right on your shoulder and ask you which way is the Howard Johnson. (laughs) I'm serious. I'm absolutely serious. If you walk out and you're you're going to hunt crows and you decide you're going to hunt them and you're going to carry your gun concealed inside your shirt, you know, and you're going out there dressed like a crayfish saner. Instantly, there isn't a crow, and they—they're they're all yelling at you. Wah, wah. You see them looking down at you, and they swim, they fly away. Wah, they yell. You walk out in the woods there. You walk out in the swamp, and you're just out there, and the crows are hopping along. Next, you hide. You know. Wah, wah, yeah, oh, the crow is a great bird. A fantastic sense of humor. Well, so so here we are. Bruner and I are going out. The crows are accompanying us. You know, they're all around. And there's another thing they have in the swamps. One of the most beautiful of all birds is the kingfisher. You ever seen a kingfisher? That's a bird, oh boy. That, believe me, the kingfisher, I've, I, this is the Robert Moses of birds. <laughs> oh, he is a tough son of a gun. I'll tell you, a kingfisher coming down for a landing is something to see, you know? It's like seven helicopters coming in, and they've got a long beak, they've got a high top knot, and they're perpetually angry. You remember those cartoons of those two little birds that they used to have on the on the cartoons? You remember? Those were kingfishers. They're all yelling at each other. Wah, wah, they yell, and, and all the crows are yelling. Bruner and Shepard are going to the big swimming hole. Everything is, everything is calm. Well, you get a sense, a kind of desire for privacy when you get out in the woods like that, or in the swamp anyway. And you don't talk much. You don't yell loud. You you really, literally become part of the animal world. And so we're going through the swamp. We've been doing this since we were six. We are now fifteen. We are real swamp people. We're going through the swamp. We have seen it all. We know all about it now. We know about the water moccasins. We know about the snapping turtles. Oh, that's something else again. I'll tell you about the snapping turtles some night. We know about the painted turtles. We know about the crows and the crawdads. We know about the bullheads. Have you ever stepped on a bullhead with bare feet? At two o'clock in the afternoon, the second day of the baseball season. And can you imagine a second baseman out of action for six weeks because of a a bullhead shot? He got a bullhead right in the knee. But this is the kind of world we lived in. And on this afternoon, we are crawling our way through the swamp. Well, there were a lot of little private places in the swamp. You'd come upon, suddenly, a little glade that wasn't there the day before. Swamps are always moving. They're like people. You just can't predict them. One day, you walk across a sandbar, and the next day, you're in the quicksand. By the way, do you know anything about quicksand? There was the rumor among all the kids that one day, one of us would be swallowed up forever by quicksand. Never happened. But every time you get in a little mud, you look quicksand, quicksand. Oh, oh, so I just, (laughs) you walk away. Oh, yeah, you know, the quicksand myth is very strong among kids. We even felt that the vacant lots had it, you know. (laughs) Quicksand was to swallow you up. Oh, are you aware that this is one of the reasons we all have a really deep fear of the earth swallowing us up? We do. No, I'm not not kidding. I'm telling you, this is a psychologist that this is one of the reasons why our space exploration goes on. But nobody has decided to build a little gondola that digs 4,000 miles into the earth. Somehow that's, that's a real scary thought. Isn't it really? Going to Saturn doesn't seem as frightening as getting in a little thing that just starts to bore down. Just digs right down through the height of New Jersey. And heads for the core of the earth. Well, so the quicksand thing is, is, is a real scary myth. Well, one day, this day, we're going through the swamp. We're moving our way through these little glades. And when you'd come upon these things, you'd kind of sneak up on them always. Kids are funny, they didn't, we didn't just run into a glen and holler, we just sneak. And suddenly, without any warning, in this quiet glade, there is something standing there. In the shadow. That dark green water. Boy, I can see the picture in my mind. It's scared. You know that you know that secret fear that all of us have that one day when we come home, our pad is dark, we're gonna open the door and there's gonna be a some shadowy figure just standing at the door looking at us. Can you imagine tonight when you're asleep in your bed? At three o'clock in the morning you wake up. Just out of a dream, you wake up, and there's a shadowy figure standing over you, <laughs> just looking. Doesn't move, just looks. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> Terrible thoughts, aren't they? Let's erase all that. Let's erase all that, boy. Boy, oh, yeah, that, that, that fear of something standing. Well, in the darkness, there is something standing. And Brunner says, what is that? It's just standing You can hardly make it out. You know, swamps are very dark. And I could see this gray thing up against the blackness of these trees. And at first it looked like some kind of a skinny man standing, just standing in the water. We looked and suddenly you could see what it was. It was a mud hen. It was a tall, skinny, gray bird just looking at us. And he had the saddest, most completely pathetic, lonely look on his face I have ever seen on anything in my life. Have you ever looked right eye to eye in the eye of a mud hen standing in a swamp next to a steel mill? He's just looking. And Bruno says, what is it? I said, I don't know and the mud hen saw us just about the same time we saw him and he backed up a little bit and you saw this fantastic fear in his eye you know you're not used to seeing emotions in birds you don't, you know, a bird is an emotionless creature, you know, you hold this bird with just little beady eyes but for some reason or other mud hens have wobbles <laughs> they have sadness, they have tears they have a bent beak just look. And they're up to their knees in water, and their knees are knobbly, and they've got kind of green, green mold on them. He backs up. And with that, he slowly stands up and starts to move his wings. He can't take off. He's stuck in the mud. He's going like this. His giant four-foot wings are just flopped. Flop. Flop. And Bruner is looking and I'm looking. We're both backing away. He's going, flop. And then, boop! He pops out, you know, like a cork coming out of a bottle. He looks back. And you can just see him going off over that swamp. Off into the distant gloom. Silence. Bruner looks. I look. I said, come on, let's go. Let's go to the swimming pool. All of a sudden, for some reason or other, there was no heart. I don't know why. We didn't want to go. It scared us. It made a very funny image. And Brunus is getting late. My mom says I ought to get home early. And we walked all the way back home, just sort of slugging or pretending. And all the while is the sight of that insane mud hen. Well, I see that mud hen about four times a day in New York, walking up 6th Avenue, coming out of a bar somewhere in the 40s. I see him come down here every Saturday night, sits out there in the darkness under the moose head and just looks. Searching for what? What is the mud hen searching for? What are we searching for? Well, I want to tell you the story of the mud hen. It goes even further than that. Years go by, I'm in the Army, I'm out of the Army, I'm in college, and one long, hot summer, even a longer, hotter summer than we're we're enjoying now, I get a summer job. You wouldn't guess what my summer job is. I'm a play-by-play announcer announcing the games of the Toledo (laughs) Mudhens. Well, let me tell you about the Toledo... I, was a, I never knew a ball team that had a better name. <laughs> the Toledo Mud Hens played... First of all, they played in a swamp.
1: <laughs>
0: and, and they had i I'm serious, you know, they had a ball field. I, I, I have to bring this in because this is all part of the American night. It's all part of the American life. Nobody else but an American would understand what I'm going to tell you about. But night after night, I would sit in the press box with my little crystal microphone in front of me and down there on the field would be the Toledo mud hens they played nothing but night games and yeah oh it was so hot they couldn't play day games out there, they only played at night and their night time, believe me, their lighting looked like the kind of lighting you see on a used car lot out in Queens they had light bulbs, you know, just hanging from wires out there, you know, around the field and hot, oh, my God, it was 100 degrees there every night, and the humidity on the shore of the lake there would come waving in. And we'd sit there and watch the Toledo mud Hens, and there would be 210 people at the ball game. Now, most of you have never seen, uh, just all of you who have ever seen minor league ball, raise your hands. You've seen minor league ball played? Well, you see how few people have ever seen it out of this crowd. You guys who think you've seen sad sights when you see the Mets, you ought to see the Met rejects playing. <laughs> now, uh, there's two kinds of ball players on a, minor, on a minor league team. There's the ball player who's on his way up, or thinks he is, and there's the ball player who's on his way down after 12 years with the Cleveland Indians or 14 years in the National League. And I'll tell you, you've never seen anything like a center fielder who played seven seasons with the Yankees, three seasons with Cleveland, two seasons with the White Sox, had a lifetime batting average in the majors of 297, playing center field for the Toledo Mud Hens. I'm telling you, it's a sight. Here's a pro. He ain't going nowhere. What he does know, well, he may be going somewhere. He may be going from class B to class D. This is where he's going. He's playing with 12-year-old kids, you know, who got that fire, you know, that, that look of Ron, Ra- you know that look of Ron Hunt? You know that sharp, skinny face, you know, that, that looks, out of the, looks out of the sporting news? Those, those, those sharp-eyed, bright-eyed, beady-eyed kids that have just come from Cornell? And here is old Big John out in center field. I want to tell you a story one night that I saw it was one of the most one of the most peculiar sights I've ever seen in sports. The Toledo Mud Hens, in case you don't know anything about them, were a farm team for a team that made the New York Mets look like the Yankees. They were a farm team for the St. Louis Browns. <laughs> They really were. They were a St. Louis Browns farm team. And the St. Louis Browns were a farm team. <laughs> you know? It was a, it was a sad scene. And, and, and here you had, they even had a one-armed outfielder. Well, yeah, they had a one-armed outfielder. And so, so one hot July night, I'm sitting in the press box up there. The score is 12 to 2. In favor of I, I don't recall who it was Indianapolis or somebody, and the Toledo Mud Hens are playing out there, and they had a big Mud Hen on the front of their jersey. It's an, uh, and this great big chicken here, you know. They had these beautiful uniforms. If you notice, the worse the team, the greater the uniforms. You know, these beautiful red bills, you know, and these sharp-looking black hats, and the big red, white, and blue bird, and it said Mud Hens on it. You know, big. And they have a big number seven on the back, and they had this beautiful PA system. And I don't know whether you've ever heard a PA system echoing out over an empty ball field, announcing the next hitter. And this 700-watt PA system says, attention, please. And they can hear it over all of southern Michigan, who couldn't care less. They're all somewhere else, you know. There's 200 people in the stands, and there's something about a die-hard minor league baseball fan that makes, honestly, makes a Met fan look like an absolute soft, quiet Madison Avenue-controlled person. <laughs> when you have been following the Toledo Mud Hens for 15 years, you are a grizzled piece of leather, and they sit out there, and they're absolute, and they're old men. Almost all of them are old men. They're retired guys old ball players. These are real baseball fans. These are not television viewers. And they sit in those wooden stands, and you can pick out each voice. You get to know all the fans. <laughs> and I'm doing it, you hear, Hey, hey Johnny, hey, Bob! Oh, it's terrible. Oh, it's terrible how you can hear the sound of one heckler in a minor league ballpark in a night game at eleven o'clock at night with a temperature a hundred degrees and two hundred people there well one clown starts getting on this major league outfielder and here he is out there here's a guy that's played in four world series i knew it you know i knew what he'd done i remember one time when he came up the bat in the in the twelfth inning of a world series game and tripled with two men on Yeah and now he's playing center field for the mud Hens. <laughs> and he had this stance, you know, there's, there's a certain stand, the way minor league ball players stand, you know, this eager look. The kid, you know, he's always moving, he's pranking. He, he can't stay, he's so excited that he's there, you know, he wants to make it. Is there a scout in the stand, you know, he's always looking up the stand, hitting his glove, you know, he's petting the back. Oh no, you can see the old timer out there, he's just waiting.
1: <laughs> and
0: he can hardly, you know, it's funny, Because the the, the fog comes moving in. They don't have good lights. And you can hardly see the outfielders. You just see these shadowy figures out there just watching, looking up into that gloom, waiting for those fly balls. Once in a while, a train would go by and it would pour its smoke down in, you know, choo-choo-choo-choo-choo. These are the guys that are on their way to what you see now doing the chic commercials. It's very strange, you know, we don't see this much in America anymore. Well, one night, score is 12 to 2. And as an announcer, your job is to make it sound exciting. Your job is to make it sound that there's a rally in the wings. Your job is to make it sound like this is worth seeing. Well, how can you say, friends, come on out here, because this is an American ritual. Come on out, because you'll never see anything like this down at the Bijou, that there's no drama like this in a Doris Day movie. It's just not there. The real thing is here, friends, because in the ninth inning, one down, Big John comes up, the ex yankee I'll never forget the sight. There are two mud hens on base. They're down 12 to 2. It's the last of the ninth. And John comes up, picks up his bat, walks up there, and he's got a straight-up stance. Stands up A right-handed hitter, by the way. So maybe you know who I'm talking about. I know old, old Yankee fans may know. <laughs> by the way, his name really was John. I won't give you his last name. So Big John is standing up there, and there's something in the human breast that likes to needle people who no longer are what they were. We love to see those which were once big no longer. I think we hate our celebrities, and we love them. And the hate is far more virulent than the love is real. Oh, yeah. How many of you would love to see mary martin reading down the street three sheets to the wind yeah Yeah, yeah. sure you tell you this you you tell that story the rest of your life you really would so here's here's old big john standing up there at the plate well everybody you know all these 210 guys out there knew he'd been a yankee they knew he'd been with the cleveland indians this guy was a real ball player and he was playing among kids. And he was playing before Boers. And so the Boers started. This nut back at third base with the leather voice. You has been! You has been! Why don't you hang him up? That means hang up your spike, you has been. You has been! And here's this poor guy. He's earning maybe $6,000 for the season. Obviously, he needs the money. Either that, or he can't quit playing the game, which is probably closer to the truth. Your husband! And everybody is here. you know, just sort of floats out. And I got my microphone, and it picks up. I can hear it in my cans. Your husband, your bum! Your husband! Ooh, you want to kill him. And here's this big, fat slob, you know, who can't even make it in the fat man, skinny man picnic ball team, you know? (laughs) Boy, has he got a set of lungs. Your has been! He's yelling. And Big John is up there. Well, there was a kid pitching. This guy, by the way, went on to become one of the best pitchers of the 1950s. And I had a very funny feeling just the other day, I read in a sport page that he had been finally given his unconditional release. This pitcher, this ki- he was a kid then though. He was 19 years old and he was on his way to 240 victories in the majors. Oh boy, did he have a fastball. And there is nothing faster than a minor league pitcher with a fastball under bad lights. Oh, I'll tell you that ball is like lightning. And he stands up there, this big, strong bull of a kid. And he's got that hat pulled down. He's in that gray. You know, there's nothing that looks more menacing than the gray traveling uniform. The enemy. They're gray. You know, they're dark gray uniforms, those drab color. He stands up there and he's getting his sign. Your husband just floats out there as clean and as beautiful as you care to hear it. That kid pitcher just looks down. He hears it. Big John can't help but hear it. He's done. And John is just standing. The one thing you learn when you work before a crowd, don't listen. But that doesn't, never works. You don't listen, but you hear. There's a difference, you know, between listening and hearing you can stand up there and you can close the ears you can close the mind but there's something that's open some antenna picks it up your hair's been your bum and this kid looks down he gets his sign up goes the foot and he lays in a fastball you know that beautiful sound that i think men appreciate it more than women of a real fastball hitting a catcher's mitt. Boom, it just goes. You can just hear it, it echoes. Boom, boom. You hear it coming back from the stand. Just, boom, that snap. Strike one. Big John didn't even see this. His reflexes, you know, are that little quarter of a millisecond too late. That's what happens, you know, to big ball players. It isn't that they lose their swing. The swing is still as beautiful. But did you notice what was happening to Ted Williams at the end of Ted Williams' career? For the first time in his life, he was hitting them to left field. He was swinging just a little too late. That ball was going off down the third baseline. And the minute they started to go left of the third baseline, Ted hung up his spikes. The reflex. And so Big John is standing. And these two mud hens are going back and forth. One of them, by the way, was a 46-year-old outfielder who had been play. He played in the majors before the war, you know, before the war, and now he's a big round figure who owns a bowling alley in town. The only reason he was playing with the Mud Hens is because he could still wail the daylights out. Of- he was just a- he was an animal. There are certain ball players that don't have reflexes. They're just animals. Just animals. <laughs> And he, he, was, he was just like an animal, this guy could hit a ball, he, he's probably 70 years old now, and he can hit a ball 600 feet. But he can't run. He's an animal, he'd hit a ball and you'd say boom off the wall, and he's still at first running. This bowling ball, you know. Well you can imagine how this guy must have hit one, he's on second, he's got a double. And so here he is dancing off a second. This 46 year old outfield, he's bouncing back and forth. <laughs> And on third is this wiry, spindly shortstop who, by the way, came up and became known as a superlative glove man in the National League. This kid is moving. He's got that that fang-teeth look of the glove man. The 165 hitter, but who's got a glove like a vacuum
1: cleaner.
0: He just moves back and forth on third, you know. Big John is standing up there. 12-2. to Last of the ninth inning. Toledo mud hens are taking on the Indianapolis Caps. And they ain't making it. The smoke is coming down in over the left field screen. And you can't even see the center fielder because the fog is setting in now. (laughs) And a couple of guys get up and go home very ostentatiously. Let me tell you, nothing is more ostentatious than the left field crowd leaving in a minor league ball game. All six of them get up. They walk out. (laughs) Carrying their beer cans, you know, they go. Well, Big John is up there. Ten minutes go by, it seemed like. It was like being played underwater. And now the count stands at three balls and one strike. And this clown... Let him walk you, John! That's your hit for the night! Let him walk you! he Well, three and one, the kid makes his mistake. That same fastball over the outside corner comes down, and Big John, remember, is a pro. He has seen them all. He's batted against Feller. He's batted against Gomez. He's batted against roughing, and this kid throws that same pitch, and I can't tell you how I felt as an announcer. There was that sound, just that, just like that. Big John just moved, and you could see those shoulders. He dug in, and he got it right on the fat part. And that ball just climbed up, up, up. Didn't even bend, you know, the kind that doesn't go up. It just went off into the fog. And the outfielders didn't even turn. They just stood there. That ball was 150 feet over the left fielder's head when it was going up and out. And Big John just starts to move. You know that snotty trot, the home run hitter got. You know? <laughs> Well, I want to tell you, I have never seen a moment, I've seen Major League ball games. I've never seen a moment that came anywhere near that. And you know, there's a little smattering of applause. After all, that makes it now, what, 12 to 5? And there's a little applause, and you can see this big, fat slob sitting back at third base. And he has turned around now. A slob is always a slob, you know. He's turned around, and he's going, hey, peanuts, peanuts. <laughs> He ain't even gonna look. Hey, Peanuts! Peanuts! Hey, Peanut Man! Come here! And Big John just rounds third base, you know, and he doesn't look up. You notice ball players never look up, you know. He doesn't look up. Hey, man. He just rounds third base, and he's heading for the dugout. You ought to see a minor league dugout. I'll tell you, it's a park bench with a hole under it,
1: you know. (laughs) And
0: and he's heading for the dugout, you know, and the crowd gives him a hand. He just sort of pulls the hat a little bit, and he ducks in. I'll I'll always, to the last day, to the last day of my life, I'll remember that number 12. That great big blue and red number 12 on the back. He bends over, it's a giant man. He ducks under and he goes. Well, the ball game slowly petered out. And three days later, in the Toledo Blade, it was announced that Big John had retired. Now, it sounds like... One of those strangely pat stories. factual truth. And I suspect that Big John, somewhere tonight, I don't care where he is, I don't know... I, oh, one more thing. I saw him on a Phil Rizzuto interview. Not more than a year ago. <laughs> and you know one of those things where, where Phil Rizzuto's up there and he says, hey, here's one of the old Yankees up here today. Drop by. What are you doing, John? You know, he says, well, I'm selling insurance somewhere and I'm I'm uh, head of the Little League, and I'm interested in children. And he's this clean, yeah, he is, you know. And he's a clean-limbed-looking guy. He looks like an insurance man now. He's got a pair of glasses, you know, with the big brims. And and Phil is talking to him. And Phil says, gee, I'll never forget the time against Cleveland, John. I remember the time when you caught... And, and he's talking, yeah, he says, yeah, I remember that. And you remember the time DiMaggio and they're talking about the great Yankees? And I wanted to jump up and say, John, tell them about the night in Toledo. (laughs) Tell them about the night you really did it. And you know, it's funny. Uh, Oh yes, gee, wow! It's it's. uh, What what is the station here? We've gone ten minutes past time. FCC. I'm sorry, we get carried away. What station is this, friends? You poor fellow sufferers! We're in the big time, aren't we, gang? We're New Yorkers, right? Oh, listen! I, I don't. Uh, I'll tell you one more. I have to, you know, because because baseball, and I don't want I don't want to get hung up on baseball too much, but baseball, in so many ways, is truly an American expression, and and. When baseball is played in hot weather, in the middle of the summer, when the pennant race is over, have you ever watched two seventh-place teams play in Kansas? I mean, really, you know, you guys are New Yorkers. You're used to watching the Yankees play. You know, you're used to watching the Dodgers, the Giants, and the Mets are colorful. Believe me, they're colorful. Have you ever watched two completely gray teams play? No color whatsoever. No, absolute no chance of even any excitement. Well, I am living out in the Midwest, and the Chicago White Sox have been for over 100 years in the second division. They owned it. They owned the second division. We used to resent it when when, uh, a team would be in eighth place and the White Sox were out of it, you know. It was like, it was just unnatural. You just felt rotten, you know. It was like uh, somebody's getting pushy, see. So the White Sox were the last place ball club. Well, suddenly, out of the middle of the Depression, the White Sox developed a colorful ball player. Now, color on a, on a bad ball team consists of being worse. Not like on a good ball team. Color consists of being Mickey Mantle, you know. Color consists of being somebody like, well, who is, all right, I'll give you one guess. Who in the entire history of the Mets ball club was by far the most colorful ball player? Mark Who? Mark Marvelous Marv. Have you ever seen Marvelous Marv with that concrete glove out there? You know? Wait a minute, you know? Oh, yeah, Marvelous Marv grew to be loved by the Mets fans because he was aggressive about his ineptitude. You know? The others would fight against it, they covered up, at Marv, when, let me tell you, when Marv made a bad throw from first over to third, believe me, it was Upper Dexville, you know? <laughs> that was Marv. Well, 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 the White Sox developed the ball player. It used to be a pleasure to go out and see him. He was without question the worst left fielder who ever played baseball. No, he really was. But the reason he played, he was an instinctive hitter. He had absolute impeccable instincts. He was a 350 hitter when he felt like it. When he was kidding around 320, You know, that kind of thing. And he'd just... He'd play around at bat. He'd come up there with the bats. He'd pretend like... You know, he'd do the little... He'd do the... I I can't... I I keep thinking... I'm sorry I'm on the radio, but... He used to do a thing, you know. He used to do a thing with his hips, you know, like this. He'd come up and he'd go like that. He'd wave at the audience. He did a thing... He would do a takeoff on some of the more prominent denizens of Greenwich Avenue. You know what I mean? And, oh, that used to make Feller mad, you know? Oh, it made those guys mad that he'd, he... Because he didn't take the game seriously. He'd play around, you know? He gets up there, and he, he'd do all kinds of bits. Like he'd come up with his hat backwards. Well, you know, I mean, what are you going to say when a guy's batting? He's got his, the bill sticking out in the back. He'd get up there like that and hit. And, of course, the crowd loved it. He'd drill a triple down the left field line with his hat backwards. Or he would drill... I'll never forget one time he hits a triple. Sure, a triple. You know, he belts one out there, and then he goes down pretending he's got a wooden leg. <laughs> you know, oh, Jimmy Dykes came out of the dugout. That's a hundred bucks, you idiot! And you go, you know, I'll tell you. He was... Now, what are you cheering? You know, the poor son of a gun was getting busted. (laughs) It's a hundred bucks. Well, one day, (laughs) this is what had happened. One day, it was a hot day. I'm, I'm a patrol boy. You know, they used to let the Boy Scouts, the patrol boys in free during the Depression because they figured that the back ends, the fannies of these kids would keep the seats clean. They didn't have to hire guys to clean up the seats, you know, and that kind of stuff. So we'd sit out there every afternoon. We saw all the ball games. We'd wear our, you know, the the Patrol Boys badge, you know, we'd wear them every... I wore it more in the summer when school was out than when school was in, you know? So we'd go in there, we'd sit down there, and one day, our left fielder makes three consecutive errors on three balls hit directly at him. I mean, you know, the kind of errors where he's circling under it like this, you know. He circles, and then, oh, like that, the last instant, you know, Don, he runs, hits the wall, and picks it up and throws it in the stands, you know, that, that kind of... Well, well you see, and, and what was so sad about it is that the ball team was playing a fairly decent game, you know. Well, he was kicking it away, literally kicking it away, kicking the balls, everything. So finally, the score at the end of the eighth inning is something like 7-1. to one. The pitcher that's pitching, you know, you develop a kind, it's it's kind of, it's not really like Roger Craig, because Roger Craig was the, was beloved of the Met fans. You ought to be a pitcher on a second division team out of town. You have lost 19 games. You have won two. And you're up there and you've got this left fielder. And you're losing another one to Detroit. And everything you throw, you have that little thing says so don't let them hit it to left field. That inhibits a guy, I'm telling you, it inhibits him. So in the eighth inning, score seven to one, somebody drills a ground ball, a single, right through short, it comes hopping along, the outfielder comes up to it, and suddenly he sees the ball, he gets one of his nutty ideas. He lays down in front of it, this one is not going to get past him, see. He lays down, and the whole crowd backs up, you know. And you can see Dykes rise up off the bench. Dykes was the manager. He rises off the bench. You see his head going down. Here's the outfitter laying there. The ball is rolling at him, and he's got his glove. He's waiting. See, it's not going to go. The last instant, it takes a bad hop. Over him. All the way to the wall. Well... He gets, he gets up, you know, he looks, he gets up, the crowd is roaring, the runners are going around, it's a merry-go-round, you know, they're going, the guy that hit the ball, it's the longest triple he ever got, you know, and and the outfielder gets up, picks up the ball, he's got it, and you won't believe it, it gets stuck in the webbing of his glove. (laughs) He can't get it out of the glove, and he's holding, forget it, home run inside the park. Well, They finally get the side out and he comes walking in. You know how ball players run in after the inning? Have you watched them? You know, they sort of run in. You should have seen this guy come down the side. He went right right by the wall and he's sidling in. He's examining the dandelions and he's coming in. Well, he arrives right down there by the dugout and Jimmy Dykes came out and Dykes took one, just stood out there like this. He came running across. Dyke says like that, just point it, in full view of all the... Point it to the clubhouse. Go. You're out of the game. The aftermath of the story is that all the White Sox fans got together and voted this guy, the worst outfielder who ever played in the majors, into the all-star team. So help me, they voted him into the all-star team he, he made the all-star team and in the third inning of the all-star game, one of the all-stars belted a long shot. They said, it's going out to left field and all the White Sox fans are sitting there watching. <laughs> we'll show that rotten league now. <laughs> it, 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 he dropped the ball. The runners... Got... Finally, the White Sox got back at a Yankee pitcher who was pitching. <laughs> so losers... <laughs> There are plenty of you out there, and if you stick with it, you may make the all star team. Thanks for coming. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health.